Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? We set out to do three things if Russia decided to pursue this horrific aggression against Ukraine. One was to support our Ukrainian partners. We're doing that. Two was to put extraordinary pressure on Russia. We're doing that. Three was to make sure that we were shoring up the defenses of our own alliance, NATO. And we're doing that. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Political Europe. And you just heard US Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking at NATO headquarters here in Brussels at a meeting of NATO foreign ministers focused on Russia's war in Ukraine. Later in the podcast, we'll look at what the West could and should do in response to the killing of civilians in the Ukrainian town of Bucha swiftly condemned by Western leaders as Russian war crimes. You'll also hear from Ukrainian anti-corruption activist Katerina Ruzhenko of Transparency International. She shares her story of how she escaped Kiev in the early days of the war and tells us what she wants EU policymakers to do to help Ukraine now and after the war. Also in this episode, we will reflect on Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's big election win and look at another looming clash between Brussels and Budapest over the rule of law. But first, let's preview Europe's biggest election of the year, the French presidential election, the first round of which takes place on Sunday. It's not getting as much attention as it normally would due to the war in Ukraine, but it remains key to the future of the continent. So let's check in on Emmanuel Macron's prospects of a second term and get the lowdown on the campaign in general with one of our Paris reporters, Elisa Brown. Hi, Elisa. Hi, Andrew. Thanks very much for joining us. We're going to talk, obviously, about the French presidential election. The first round is on Sunday. Let me give a quick recap of where the polls stand before we get into uh, the issues and into the candidates in a bit more depth. Um, So our latest political poll of polls, as we record midweek, the week before the election, Emmanuel Macron, the president, out in front with 27% of the vote. Marine Le Pen of the National Rally Party, Party, the far right, 22%. Jean-Luc Mélenchon of the far left, 16%. Éric Zemmour, who was the kind of rising star of the far right, if you like, until recently, down on 10%. Valérie Pécresse of Les Républicains, the Conservatives, on 9%. Yannick Jadot uh, of the Greens on 5%, and then other candidates uh, below that. And I should say, actually, perhaps before we go on, that then, of course, you get to a second round runoff. At the moment, that would be between Macron and Le Pen. And there, at the moment, of course, it's kind of hypothetical when you ask this question at the moment, but the polls show a pretty close uh, race. So, 
Elisa, you were at uh, a rally of uh, Emmanuel Macron at the weekend. Uh, give us a sense of the mood there and the mood more generally in the Macron camp. How are they feeling about this election? Well, the rally was teased a lot by Macron supporters and they were selling us an Obama-like event and an American-inspired event. <laughs> But uh, in the end, I think that it's hard to say that it's a success because a few days after the event, nobody actually talks about it. Some even say that Macron did not manage to actually make the news and come up with a, a strong idea. But he is still in the lead. He is the incumbent. Um, I think it sounds like he's he benefited to an extent from the war in Ukraine, uh, in, the, in the sense that other candidates are kind of tainted by their association with Russia, with Vladimir Putin, certainly on the right, uh, not just on the right. So he is in the lead, but Marine Le Pen seems to be running a clear second and looks like she would give him a good run in the second round. Can you explain to us what she seems to have done right in this campaign to, to emerge as this clear second place candidate uh, with a strong chance or at least a chance in the second round? Yes, while Macron was busy talking with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, Le Pen actually continued her campaign in uh, La France Profonde, hammering on everyday life problems such as the price of fuel, people's purchasing power, and she visited a lot of small towns, small villages, and her, her trips were not very much covered by the national press, but she was there and she had a big echo in local media. And what's her... Um, what has she changed at all in terms of her messaging? A lot of us who have followed Marine Le Pen and her father would associate her and her party with very strong anti-migrant, anti-immigration, anti-Muslim rhetoric, anti-EU to an extent. Are those still themes in her campaign? Uh, well, she has rebranded her family right-wing nationalist party to appeal to voters who actually don't consider themselves as uh, right-wing nationalists. She even managed to look more centrist compared to uh, Eric Zemmour, her main uh, opponent uh, in the far right. And she also actually managed to avoid accusations of being a sort of a Putin fangirl, while Zemmour is actually fading in the polls because of his status as a Putin fanboy. Mm. And I wanted to concentrate uh, for a moment on an issue that you've been reporting on. You're one of the first reporters, if not the first reporter, to really latch on to this issue, which has now become known as McKinsey Gate. McKinsey Gate, McKinsey, McKinsey Gate. Alors McKinsey, c'est un cabinet de conseil américain privé. McKinsey, a-t-on affaire véritablement à un scandale d'État Eh bien aujourd'hui, je vais vous parler d'un certain McKinsey. Euh, c'est le président de la France. Euh, nous, on connaît juste le statut. de ce scandale McKinsey, il faut l'appeler Emmanuel McKinsey Macron. Maybe I should try and say it with a French accent. Um, I mean, just uh, this is really, I mean, I will try and summarise it in a few words, but you then perhaps tell us why it has had such a kind of echo in the campaign, which is this idea of the French government, Emmanuel Macron's party government, uh, relying on consultants, in particular McKinsey, to help with uh, developing government policy, rolling out government policy. Maybe tell us how this all began, how this kind of surfaced as an issue and, and why you think it, it resonates so much in France. 
Well, we first broke uh, the scoop last year, and it was a big. It came as a shock to many French people because uh, obviously uh, we are living in a country where uh, public health means something, and uh, people did not know that an American firm was working actually with the French ministries. And a source recently told me if McKinsey was actually Jean-Pierre Consulting, this would not be an issue at all. And I think that it says something. And that first story was about McKinsey being involved in the vaccine rollout, the coronavirus vaccine rollout, right? Yes, exactly. But since we first broke the story, several lawmakers actually started their own investigation and realized that McKinsey, but also many other consultancies were actually involved in Macron's major reforms, which caused a new outrage a year after that, because new figures came out and um, many of Macron's opponents actually are using the McKinsey gate as a way to criticize his mandate. And uh, Macron actually wants to show himself as someone who is able to lead major reforms, but all his opponents are, are now using this very simple uh, recipe or ruse. It's just to say, is this an idea from McKinsey? And this actually works. And the government so far has not managed to completely calm the controversy. Yeah, it's interesting that this is a debate which has, I think, been held in other European countries, certainly in the UK uh, and in others, probably years, if not decades ago. There was a lot of controversy when, when these kind of companies were first involved in government policy. Um, but that debate largely has died down. Uh, is there any reason you think it has particular resonance in France now? Does it does it also kind of tie with Emmanuel Macron's image of being someone, you know, he, he was a banker for a while that, he, you know, there's a kind of this kind of um, slight scepticism about the, the private sector being involved in, in politics? Yes, obviously, Macron has always shown himself as a very business-friendly leader. And some people even called him the, the consultant's king because uh, he actually introduced himself to the political world with PowerPoints and uh, disruptive concepts uh, in English. I mean, the startup nation was one of his key ingredients of his 2017 campaign. I think that covers us. We'll catch up on um, all of this on Sunday night with you and uh, your colleagues in Paris. And then we'll be back again with our regular show next week to, to look forward a bit more, I think, to, uh, to the next round. But for now, Elisa, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. And joining us now to discuss a couple of the other big talking points of the week, Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi there. And from NATO headquarters here in Brussels, our reporter Lily Beyer. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Let's start with Ukraine. Um, obviously, we all saw the images over the weekend of the bodies of civilians in Bucha near Kiev. And those images uh, prompted, of course, widespread condemnation from Western leaders. They were very quickly branded war crimes. And then obviously came the question of political repercussions. We have seen another uh, round of sanctions announced by the EU and by others. Um, I would say not huge advance in terms of the substance of those sanctions, a promise to move towards a ban on Russian oil imports, but nothing that would have kind of immediate massive effect I guess the question is whether images such as these and others, if they emerge, will and should change the Western uh, response to Russia. Um, Matt, what do you think? 
Well, I think for the Germans in particular, it's become pretty difficult to keep transferring hundreds of millions of euros a day for Russian gas while these atrocities are going on. And it underscores really the theme for Germany throughout this entire crisis, which is that they're always a little bit behind the ball here and are doing too little too late. Of course, it's not only Germany that's buying Russian gas now. There are plenty of other countries from Austria to Hungary and others, as, as we've discussed, Italy, of course. But it does seem that Germany is the power that could really make a big difference here. The question, of course, is would it really make a difference in terms of changing Putin's behavior if they were to put an embargo on Russian gas imports? That's obviously debatable, but I think that it makes a lot of people feel a bit queasy, especially Germans, given their history, to see these atrocities and to keep buying this gas, as essential as it is to Germany's economy, of course. Right, and the German argument, it wasn't that long ago we heard Olaf Scholz say, we can't do this uh, because it would tip Europe into a recession. Do you think there's any prospect of them rethinking uh, the consequences here or, or deciding that ultimately there's an economic price that's just going to have to be paid? You know, as, as, as I said, I think this has been the dominant theme throughout this crisis with the Germans in particular being a little bit behind the curve on a lot of these issues. And the question of a recession is obviously out there. But to me, I would ask, should they really be more concerned about a recession than what is going on on the ground in Ukraine in terms of these atrocities? And I think that the more that happens there, and hopefully we won't discover, or hopefully the Ukrainians won't discover more buchas, but there's a distinct possibility they will. And I think that the Germans and the Western Europeans that rely on Russian gas could well discover that a recession would be the least of their fears at this moment. Lily, you're at a meeting of NATO foreign ministers. Um, what's been the response there to these images, to these atrocities? And is it changing how NATO leaders are talking about the military response in terms of helping Ukraine, Ukrainian forces in particular? Obviously, they've said they're staying out of it as a, a kind of direct combatant. But what's the, the latest thinking there in terms of how they approach the war, also in terms of, of military assistance to Ukraine? Of course, uh, NATO officials and ministers have condemned these atrocities. Um, I think uh, there's widespread shock about the images that we have been seeing, and ministers will be discussing ways of helping Ukraine even further. But one interesting thing that I've noticed is that there is a bit of a sense of frustration that officials feel like they have been doing a lot and yet they were unable to stop these atrocities with the measures that are already in place. And now they're at a point when they're trying to think of you know, what else they can do without crossing their own red lines, which is uh, quite a big dilemma for many governments, I believe. We've also heard from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg today uh, being uh, very blunt that this conflict may take a long time. He said it can take months or even years, and he is trying to prepare allies for the long haul and trying to have them you know, plan for supporting Ukraine possibly over a longer period of time. So it does feel like we're entering um, a different phase of this conflict. 
I think that part of the problem here is that people are looking for kind of instant gratification and thinking that, well, if we impose all of these sanctions, you know, something is going to uh, happen in Russia to stop Putin from uh, going further. And I think that's the wrong way to look at it because there's no guarantee these sanctions will work. I think it's pretty unlikely that they will prevent further atrocities, that they will prevent Russia from continuing this war. But I do think that there is a moral imperative for Western countries that supposedly hold liberal values so dear to say, we're willing to take an economic hit here, even though it's not going to resolve the problem, but we cannot countenance doing business with somebody like Putin under these circumstances any more than they would have with a lot of other sort of past dictators in in Europe and elsewhere. I mean, it's interesting that this uh, phrase has been doing the rounds recently. It's interesting how um, these phrases kind of suddenly spread among European leaders. And one that we've heard repeatedly is this idea that sanctions shouldn't hurt Europe more than they hurt Russia. In other words, if the cost is bigger for Europe than Russia, you shouldn't be doing them. But it's interesting. I mean, that's one of those sound bites that sounds like it makes perfect sense. But if you dig into it a bit, it may be, right? I mean, there is an argument that says, actually, we have to take the bigger hit because it could still... Exactly. And I think this is the nature of, of sanctions generally. The most effective sanctions are the one that hurt the sanctioner as much as the sanctioned. Mm. Lily, let's switch to another topic. Um, and that's one that we obviously previewed in last week's podcast, the election in Hungary. You were in Budapest for the election. It turned out to be another big win for Prime Minister Viktor Orban, champion of illiberal democracy, uh, back for another four-year term. Do you have, uh, does the opposition perhaps have a concise explanation for why they didn't do better? Because obviously, as we discussed last week, they united to form this big alliance to try and defeat Viktor Orban. But the result ultimately was very similar to last time. So what's the best analysis of why it turned out that way? Um, I think there's definitely a lot of disappointment among the Hungarian opposition right now. Even though few people actually expected them to win, I think they were expecting to at least put in a good showing so that you know, they could show their voters that maybe change is possible in the future. But they ended up um, really underperforming compared to basically all polls. So they came in at 34% based on the, the national list, whereas uh, 54% of Hungarians who voted, voted for Fidesz on their national list. And because of Hungary's um, electoral system and gerrymandering, this actually translated into a two-thirds majority for Fidesz, 135 seats out of 199 in the parliament, which is a crushing victory for Viktor Orban. I think there is now a lot of finger-pointing in the opposition. Some blame the candidate, Peter Markizai, Others um, blame the, the messaging. Um, I think there will be a lot of soul-searching but uh, what is certain is that uh, whatever they had tried simply did not work. Mm. Right. And we should also point out that um, in quite diplomatic language, uh, there was a, a verdict, if you like, from international election observers who said that the, the playing field was not level, which is another way of saying it wasn't a fair fight. You know, the media landscape was hugely biased in favour of uh, Viktor Orban. Uh, as you say, uh, you know, the electoral system is widely seen as having been designed by the Hungarian government to favour Fidesz. So there were those other factors. And of course, there was also
also the war, right, which is uh, right next door to Hungary and, as we discussed last week, seems to have favoured Viktor Orban. Matt, did you want to chime in? Well, I don't know if I should, but uh, <laughs> I just think we maybe should read part of that statement from the OSCE. I mean, effectively, you know, this was a rigged election, okay? I mean, you know, the question, why did they lose? Well, because the election was rigged, effectively. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that... I mean, we shouldn't rule out entirely that some people just like Viktor Orban and his policies, right? Well, of I course, mean, yeah, they do. But, you know, these are people who have been, you know, fed his propaganda by a uh, media environment that he has completely manipulated in his favor over the years. And, you know, it's, it's an issue that we've seen in other countries, uh, like the one we were talking about before, Russia. If I could just add one thing, um, you know, I was um, out reporting on various campaign events, both for the government and, and for the opposition. And one conversation with a voter really struck with me. Um, it was um, an elderly lady in Sekashvahirvar, uh, where Orban had his very last rally. Um, she was 81 years old, and I was chatting with her in the crowd. She was a big Orban fan. And um, she was telling me that part of why she likes Orban is because he doesn't let the West push around Hungary and tell Hungary what to do. And I thought that was such a fascinating thing to hear from just um, an ordinary elderly pensioner that this is something that she feels is important to her when she votes. Right. And something which... Uh, perhaps she and others would see as the West pushing Hungary around, but which a lot of other people would say is the EU trying to make sure that member countries actually adhere to the values of the EU, is this new scheme that the EU has for being able to, at least theoretically, cut off EU funds or reduce EU funds to countries that are not upholding uh, particular values, particularly when it comes to the rule of law and the administration of the budget. And we've seen the European Commission very quickly in the days after the election trigger that mechanism for the first time against Hungary. Lily, where do you see that ending up? Is there any possibility of anything other than the EU ultimately cutting off funds to Hungary and a new crisis resulting from that? This is definitely a historic move. It would be the first time that the Commission is triggering um, this new mechanism, but there are a lot of unanswered questions. So first off, because this has never been used, we don't really know how it's going to be implemented. So the regulation says that any reduction in funding has to sort of be proportional to the rule of law violation, which is something I think that will be quite difficult to define. And I will be very curious to see how the commission will try to define this. And then, of course, this will then go to the council, to the member states, and they will have to formally vote on cutting funding. And this can get very tricky politically, especially when we keep in mind that right now the EU is making a lot of really important decisions, especially when it comes to Ukraine and Russian sanctions, where they want and need Hungary on board. So that could actually play a role. And I expect a lot of political debates about how to proceed. Okay, uh, Lily, Matt, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And just a reminder, we'll be hosting that live Twitter chat on Sunday at 10pm Central European time with our reporters in Paris, bringing you reaction and analysis on the first round of that French presidential election. So follow Political Europe's Twitter feed to join us for that. 
and we'll bring you highlights of that conversation in a special edition of EU Confidential early Monday morning. So if you haven't already, be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast so you don't miss that or any future episodes. Now, stay with us to hear from Katerina Ruzhenko, who fled Kiev at the start of the war and was here in Brussels recently to push EU lawmakers to do more to help her country. That's coming next. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. A message from EPRA. In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU Commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, Listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth, and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe. Now, most of our guests on this podcast have a pretty straightforward journey if they come to meet us in person in Brussels. But that's anything but the case for this week's guest, Katerina Ruzhenko, the Deputy Secretary General of the Ukrainian branch of Transparency International, the anti-corruption organisation. So before we get into why she was here in Brussels, let's hear some excerpts of the story of how she got here which she recounted in conversation with Politico's Jakob Hankavella and David Herzenhorn. It is, of course, the kind of journey millions of Ukrainians have had to make in recent weeks, but we thought it was worth hearing in Katerina Rozhenko's own words. The war started for me in Kiev. Uh, my sister woke me up with a call from another country, actually. It was like 5.30 in the morning, and she told me, like, you know... You are at war. Do you see the war in the window? And I, uh, I mean, now I laugh about it, but it's more of a, like, you know, reaction. I didn't hear any explosions. Um, I just got this information. Uh, I grabbed my backpack that basically all the Ukrainians by that time had already prepared, like, you know, with what you run. Uh, and I sat for like two hours in a corridor. Because they say if there are bombardments, you need to sit uh, in the corridor where there is, like, main walls. Uh, so, yeah, after... I spent a gift a couple of days, and there was this huge decision. Is it better to go, or is it better to stay? But we decided to drive, also with my colleague, with her child and a cat. <laughs> we drove under the alarms, uh, bombshell alarms, 
I don't know if it was a wise decision, but we decided not to stop when the alarm came up because you like you don't know your brain does not work the same way and when you understand you do understand that there is bombing but you don't get uh, exactly understanding until you see it for the first time and it happens to you so yeah we drove for over three days i guess uh, to lviv uh traffic jams everywhere like when we had connection was uh, in the phone we checked if our next destination has been bombed or not then you just drive 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 like a crazy maniac we slept in the car because all the hotels were booked and then it took me again around a day to cross the border i walked for over 35 kilometers because there was line of cars that barely moved uh, so i decided to walk There were some buses, but they mostly pick up women because there were like tons of people walking with children, cats, dogs, grandmothers, you know, all their things, luggage. But, you know, <laughs> I I didn't want to take those places. You were traveling alone at that point? Yes, the, I was by myself and uh, my uh, fiancé was waiting for me on the Polish border. He's a foreign citizen. Uh, yeah, it took me like around 24 hours to walk and then stay in the lines at the border. Uh, so it was February. In Ukraine, it's minus. I was in winter clothes. Let's just say it took me several days for my feet to go back to normal size. But uh, the good thing is that villagers that you pass, they were very kind. They put some sandwiches on, some hot tea. Uh, because honestly, I did prepare the backpack, but I guess you don't understand. You know what to put there, but not completely. For example, I didn't take uh, gloves. <laughs> or like I didn't take thermos uh, and they the villages were giving tea even during the night was letting to use like facilities uh, put some benches uh, I cannot imagine if they were not there um, that was definitely something I you know but I was the lucky ones I didn't I, the lucky one I didn't have to sit for weeks in the bomb shelters and you're still young and, and yeah I'm I don't have cats dogs children so uh, I just honestly cannot imagine if you had any other things to carry about I think those women with children are just heroes because that is they did something unimaginable in order to save their family. Mm. Yeah. You were saying, I mean, now you're in Italy, but this week you're in Brussels and you're working. And you were saying that uh, one of the main topics that you are working on is um, what the EU can do to help uh, Ukraine after the war is over, that um, politicians should start thinking about the day after the war. Can you tell us a bit what they should be doing now? Yeah, today I'm using the possibility that I got, you know, uh, to the safe place from the war to uh, come here to Brussels and to talk about the topics that should be, in my opinion, my opinion of my organization, on agenda. First of all, I want to thank uh, all European countries and European Union as a, you know, institution that response was passed to the war in Ukraine and there were a lot of sanctions and other things done uh, but uh, war is not over 
therefore there should be next steps, there should be wider, stronger sanctions or better sanctions that we already have. But also, I think we should we should look forward and we should think strategically, both Ukrainians and European Union, and plan for the future. For example, all those assets that have been frozen in a lot of European countries, yachts, houses, money. At this point, uh, there is a huge legal gap of what to do with them because a lot of countries um, separately do not have legislation exactly tuned to the situation because no one expected it. Mm -hmm. And uh, definitely something that uh, should be uh, very soon looked at by European Union to how address all those problems legislatively, how to seize this assets, how to confiscate them, and more important for the future of Ukraine and any victims of Russian aggression, how to use this money of the oligarchs, of the state officials from Russia for good in order to address all the humanitarian and other problems that, for example, Ukraine has. You need to rebuild the country. You need to build back the houses. You need to recreate infrastructure. It's not only about tracing, seizing, freezing. It's also about how you can confiscate that money, but also how to use it in order to um, cover the problems that these people with this money created uh, for the victims of the war. And um, of course, there should there are several ways you can go about it. There should, can be funds created, for example, where international partners with civil society uh, representatives and Ukrainian representatives decide how to manage this money or, you know, there can be other avenues. But first, uh, European Union needs to address how to even legally and according to the rule of law confiscate these assets. Instead of just freezing them. Because right now I know um, in many EU countries, Russian oligarchs are still able to use the for example, cars or yachts, they just exactly. cannot leave the country with them, but they... Or sell them, but use. they can use it. And even more, not always in the frozen assets, they can even establish the connection between uh, this specific asset and, for example, state official from Russia. Mm. And this is also a thing that can be addressed uh, by European Union, creating and opening the registries of beneficial ownership. Uh, okay. or, or, for example generally improving anti-money money laundering legislation. Which is where the expertise of your organization comes in. Exactly. And uh, our colleagues from, uh, for example, other offices of Transparency International, because it first should be addressed on European level, but then national states, mm. separate states have to adapt it to the reality of the said state. And we are more than eager to help. So in practice, it will work because just to freeze the assets, it doesn't do anything mm. to rectify the harm that was done mm. uh, by Russia and Russian officials and oligarchs who definitely fueled up the war and who mm. keep paying to some degree for this war. Now, among the ways Transparency International works to combat corruption around the world is through what they call a Corruption Perception Index. That ranks countries based on how corrupt their public sectors are perceived to be. 
giving each country a score and a ranking. David asked Katerina Rozhenko about that. We are now, oh my God, I hope I didn't uh, miss the 32, um, 32 points because it's important in transparency ranking, not the place, but actually the number of points out of 100. Uh, yes, it's not amazing, but we grew up in 10 years quite significantly. Uh, during the last couple of years, it's been up and down one or two points, which is not that significant if you look at this statistically. But uh, we were still moving towards higher and higher than, for example, Russia in the region. Yeah, where were they? We're going to ask. Uh, yeah. Uh, points? Just a couple. Uh, <laughs> it's, been, it's been, you know, one up, one down in, in the last three years. Of course, we are far away from uh, our European neighbors. But again, this is rating is about how business see level of corruption in the country. And the main thing is that there is progress and there would have been even more progress because a lot of reforms were adopted in the last years that were supposed to start like judicial reform that was created just a couple of years ago anti-corruption court in Ukraine who was showing amazing results. And, uh, you know, there was like procurement reform and uh, state property management reform. And all of these things now is on hold. Hopefully we will be able to return to some level after the war and continue with them. And eventually join the EU. That is definitely something we're looking forward to. It's time, I think. (laughs) Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thanks again to Jakob and David for bringing us that conversation. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Remember, we'll be coming to you live on Twitter on Sunday at 10pm with analysis of round one of the French presidential election. So be sure to follow at Political Europe if you want to listen in to that conversation. We'll include a link in our show notes so you can join us live. And we'll be in your podcast feed with that special edition of the show based on that conversation first thing on Monday morning. Remember, you can always send us feedback. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.